It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host. I'm also one of the certified financial planners on the program. And with me, as always, in the KFG studios, my business partners and fellow CFPs, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Which financial rules of thumb are worth following and which ones should you just break? Are there certain popular financial guidelines that you should have on your radar screen? We're going to be covering that and more on today's episode. That's right. If you have a question for the program, which we're going to be hitting questions, second half of today's program, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online, wisemoneyshow.com. You can call or text 574-222-2000 or wherever you're at in social media. We are there as well. Just search the Wise Money Show. Engage with us that way. Most questions come on the YouTube channel. You can check that out, but uh, engage with us that way as well. All right, rules of thumb. The Oxford Dictionary defines these as a broadly accurate guide or principle based on experience rather than theory. I thought that definition was interesting. Broadly accurate, I would agree with. But that is precisely why I would say financially, these are dangerous to follow. Why? Because your financial life is not broadly consistent with everyone else's. That's right. Right? And so, you know, how to approach um, your diet and other things, yeah, rules of thumb can help with that. But your financial situation, even though your neighbor, let's say, you know, you live in the same neighborhood, you, you know, you might think, yeah, financially probably pretty similar. You have no idea. You have no idea. Everyone's financial situation is extremely unique to them. So let's talk through some of the most popular rules of thumb. And I'm going to get these guys their hot take. <laughs> I'm gun shy because every time we talk about rules of thumb, Kevin makes a joke about how our rule of thumb is that we don't like rules of thumb. And uh, I, I don't know which ones we're allowed to <laughs> to cite and which ones we shouldn't. Yeah, well, let's break the rules, not the thumbs. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, you ever broken your thumb? It's the first bone I broke in my body. I was, I was uh, rollerblading as a hockey player. I was rollerblading. My parents just decided that it was okay for me to get rollerblades. And the first time I had them on, I fell and planted my hand, broke my thumb. Nice. And I avoid telling them for a day because I was so scared. But <laughs> they only took the rollerblades away. Okay, uh, rules of thumb. All right, let's get, I'm just gonna randomly pick some. Yes, okay, so. we'll just go through it. Yep. Uh, let's start with some of the most, uh, most popular ones. Um, start with, should you save 10% towards retirement? That is sort of the rule of thumb, save 10% for retirement. What do you guys, what do you guys think? I don't know if I've ever run into anyone who doesn't need to save at least that amount, but is 10% the amount? I, I say absolutely not. Um, uh, to me, th this is one where I more commonly hear 15% um, save for retirement. Yeah. And I, even that, I, again, it's 15%. Maybe if you're going to start day one of your career and you're going to keep on saving all throughout, but how many people fit the mold just perfectly? No, a few people do. Yeah. Instead, it needs to be a calculated amount that is uniquely tailored to you. What amount do you need to achieve your goal? Because your goal is different than everybody else. You may be starting later on your savings. You might want to retire sooner. You might have uh, other circumstances like other dependents that are going to be with you into retirement, maybe a child with special needs or something. But 
every single story is unique. And because of that, your path towards retirement should be unique. Your savings amount should be based on your plan, not, not someone else's. So can I fix it? Because I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah, how would you fix it? I would say start saving 15% towards retirement from your very first paycheck. I because like that. Mm-hmm. And your very first paycheck, assuming you didn't get your first job at age 50, mm-hmm. um, then it's about building the right habits. And I, I, by the time you show up at your CFP's office and you're crunching the numbers on retirement, if you've started from day one at 15%, you'll be able to recalibrate from there. Yeah. But if you start at zero, I mean, that that's my concern with the save 10% towards retirement or save 15%. The folks that start late and like, all right, well, I guess I need to start saving this 15% or this 10%. No, 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 no. Like you needed to do that when you were 21. Yep. Yeah. It, you know, if, if your financial advisor's job is to help you build the financial house of your dreams, it just works better if... We all show up on the construction site with some resources already there. The building materials are already starting to accumulate. And starting out 15% early on in your career is absolutely a fantastic way to get a jump start on a long goal. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm going to be the contrarian, I'm going to say don't plan because 95% of Warren Buffett's wealth came after he was 65. So, okay, just kidding, just kidding. Hey, come on now. Yeah. Uh, this is a show about financial planning. And um, so, no, for financial planning, for sure, I would, I like to take a, a rule of thumb if it's 10% and say, well, if that's the standard pace, I don't want to be on the standard pace. But right. I also, the thing that would help me think through this is I need to think in terms of what's the required sacrifice today in order for me to get what I want tomorrow. So just go to the marshmallow test, right? Google that on YouTube. Hmm. So can I say, I don't want to eat a marshmallow right now because I'm gonna get two in five minutes. And all the little kids eat the marshmallow for the most part. Yeah, see, I I would, and I don't wanna get into the semantics here, but I would first look at what you're going to get what the win what the win is that that allows you to sacrifice today Why, sure. who's who's just into sacrificing for nothing uh, not not me but sacrificing for something that i want in the future oh that's yeah for sure what about saving 3 to 6 months into your emergency fund that's a rule of thumb your your emergency fund should be 3 to 6 months of your income most people think should be living expenses living though. expenses but yeah, is yeah. that a good rule of thumb Sure. I think it's a great rule of thumb. And I would say you could save even more. Here's a little phenomenon that happens. Once you save money and you're a cash buyer, I would just declare like some of these rules of thumb, I would make your personal constitution or your family constitution. Hey, we are net savers. We're, we're saving a considerable amount of money. Uh, emergency fund. Hey, we're going to have at least three, if not six months of living expenses in the form of an online money market account that we can tap. What happens when you do that is your appetite for using other people's money to buy stuff tends to shrink. And I would say, well, to the extent that you can shrink that or even kill it and say, hey, the constitution that we live by, we're cash buyers. How do we buy a car? We make payments to ourselves. Once we've made enough payments to ourselves and got enough dough, we go and buy a car. Yeah, I, I love that. I really like this rule of thumb as well. It's probably the one that I cite the most. Um, I, I like 
defining an emergency fund, a properly built emergency fund in terms of time, um, three to six months, simply because the biggest emergency that you might face at some point is an interruption to your income. And, th and the question is, well, how long can your family continue to operate, continue to function, hopefully as normal, um, before you get into major crisis? Uh, the thing I would keep in mind, though, is this is often a goal that we encourage people to build it early on as you're kind of laying the foundation of your financial life. And when you check that box as done, you may move on to other more more fun uh, goals to be achieving. But the issue is, over time, your lifestyle is going to creep higher and your emergency fund needs to get bigger as time goes on. So don't forget about it just because you've been carrying 10 grand in an emergency fund for the past decade. Maybe it needs to be closer to 15 or 20 by now. Yeah, I, I like I like this. I like this one as well because of the you know geeky side of me of, yeah, that interruption to income and how much time will it take you to get back into the workforce or find that next job? I, I like starting at three to six months. Only if you have a fully functioning delayed spending account, though. Because if you don't have a delayed spending account to help cover vacations or car repairs or whatever, then everything's going to feel like an emergency. That's not a normal monthly expense. And if that's the case, then three to six months is not adequate. So what are some of the other most popular financial rules of thumb? Should you follow them or break them? We've got that and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Which financial rules of thumbs are gospel? Which ones should you follow? Which ones should you say, ah, no way. It's, it's uh, definitely not uh, not one that you'd want to apply. We're helping you with that right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Stay up to date on all Wise Money content. Find us online, wisemoneyshow.com, and then all over social media, wherever you're at, we are there as well. All right, so we've hit saving 10% towards retirement. Nah, we changed that one. Three to six months in the emergency fund, yes, but make sure you've got a three bank account system that's working. What about this one? There's there's just tons of budgeting rules of thumb out there. Uh, the 50-30-20 rule, 50% of your take home towards necessity, 30% on lifestyle, 20% on financial goals. No, I don't like it. It does not, it doesn't account for uh, for the future lifestyle or the future necessities, the delayed spending account. No, I don't like it. Yeah. I like the idea of you need to uh, just target yeah. 10, or 10, 15, 20% uh, towards saving. I like that, but I don't like this actual rule. So I have some, uh, maybe an alternative that I, I've been kind of kicking around here and trying to test a little bit. I, I would call it the 10, 20, 30, 40 approach. Now, what is 10%? If 10% went to giving right off the bat, I, I want that to be a part of our patterns in our family. Some of the some of my favorite people on the planet are really generous people. And if I want to be like them, I need to be a giver. I need to be in the habit of that. 20% then, if that went to goal achievement, that could be saving for retirement. It could be uh, trying to help your kids with college. Maybe you early on are using some of those goal achievement dollars to accelerate debt payment or build up that emergency fund, whatever it is. This is your firepower to go achieve goals. 30%, what if that was the maximum towards debt reduction? Love that. Right? So you got to put some sort of governor on how much debt you're willing to accept into your life. And 
be ready for that to go away because when the debt's all gone, now you've got 30% that can be redirected into these other areas. The fourth one, which is 40%, what if you could control your overall spending and lifestyle and keep it there at least initially while you're building that, that foundation in life? That number could go up if the debt goes away. I like it. So how much in that, what, 10, 20, 30, 40, how much uh, percentage should be going into Bitcoin? <laughs> Kevin, I'll let you answer that one. Well, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the yeah, 40%. I have the right? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 okay. program. <laughs> I like that. I, there's all sorts of, I'm just going to tell you right now, we're not going to be able to cover all of them. Uh, all sorts of budgeting rules of thumb. I, terrible. I, I think that to me, I just look at that and say, oh yeah, budgeting's difficult. A three bank account system, a system that fits within your comprehensive financial plan makes sense. I don't, I don't, I don't love the budgeting rules of thumb. Yeah. So the budgeting rules of thumb may be terrible or terrible as Charles Barkley might say, <laughs> but here's what I would think. Try to live an examined life in all areas of your life, but especially financially. Like I would get financially curious, What you know, have some sort of sense of wonder and then some sort of depth of inquiry mm-hmm. and say, okay, what is it? What do the smart guys say? I should be doing and what am I actually doing and what is wrong and and this is what we spend our life doing right we we do this for a living and we spend a good chunk of time reading what people who don't do this for a living but write about doing it <laughs> say about it so I so I love this I to me this is this is very interesting it might not be interesting to everyone but the thing that should be interesting hopefully to you is what is happening in your own financial life and what what is the response that you should have? Whether I'm responding to the impacts of inflation or uh, the what's happening in my, my children and their education. I mean, go yeah. on down the line. All kinds of uh, random factors that are going to have meaningful impacts on your financial life. A lot of rules of thumb around houses. Uh, don't buy a house. That's more than three times your annual salary. Sorry if you're retired. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, what do you Time guys think? To downsize if what you, you retire. I, I like I like some sort of simple, easy governor on how much your how how much you can afford. I think that's absolute garbage, though, in my opinion. Yeah, sure it is. And and here's the thing: keep in mind, you never truly own your house. You will pay rent to the emperor as long as you own it. And if right. you don't pay that rent in the form of property taxes for two years. Um, You're out. Someone, some, someone else is going to own it. Hmm. So this is where I would say, what, what can I have as far as an expense control mechanism? And real estate costs is one of those things that I can have a great control over. And I'd say, and a lot of times for for most people, for the first, let's just say, forty years. Of your life, whether you're graduating from high school and you're looking at housing costs for the next 40 years or college in the next 40 years, it's probably a monthly payment. Yeah. And so if it's in the form of a monthly payment, depending on what the percentages you do with your budget that we just talked about, in the form of a monthly payment, I I would err on the side of the lowest possible monthly payment. And because if I'm going to double up my mortgage payment or something else, I just need to make sure I'm super liquid because that money that goes against the mortgage, I'm not going to get it back for a long time. I might not even get that money back in my lifetime. Yeah. So you just got to make sure you don't need that money. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, I, I'm not typically a fan of these types of rules of thumb. Um, however, the, the part that is redeeming in, in my mind, when you start basing um, your house decision, how much you spend on a house, basing it on your income level, the, the part I do like about it is it's trying to match your resources with your house decision. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's important because it's an easy one to look around and say, well, I want a house like so-and-so's. I, I want to quickly get to a house like the one I grew up in. So you're trying to match your parents' decisions and, and their, their resources. their income level, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So to me, trying to right-size your house decision based on your needs and your resources instead of the comparison game that we often get sucked into. I, I like that a, a little bit. I, I agree. And and you do you just need to apply it to your financial situation with your CFP because if you're graduating from college and you're swimming in student loans and you aren't, you know, you don't have a down payment, just looking and saying, well, I, I can afford a house that's three times my salary, I don't I don't agree with. So anyway, uh, what about refinance your mortgage when you can save 1% on the interest rate? You have an opinion on that one? I like that rule of thumb. We've, yeah, you, we've uh, used it. Yeah, yeah so the, the, the trick is, are you going to be an, an average person? Because the average person isn't going to be living in the house that they're living in now in five years. Yeah. Will you have, I've, I've uh, kind of diluted it down to, will you still have that mortgage in five years? Uh -huh. Meaning, will you have paid it off? Will you refinance it? Or will you sell the house? If you're still going to have that mortgage in five years, I like that as 1%. So, so the times when you might deviate from the one percent rule of thumb would be if you have a really large mortgage. You know, maybe dropping half a percent will save you so much money because it's a huge balance that you're carrying. Or if you've got a really tiny mortgage, refinancing to reduce your rate by one percent may not pay for itself. So, really, the the full analysis that you have to do with your certified financial planner is figure out what is it going to cost me to refinance? What are right. the closing costs and out-of-pocket expenses? And how rapidly will I be able to recoup those because of the interest savings that I'm going to gain? Yeah, that's right. Um, your Josh, you alluded to this really quick. Your, your monthly spend on your mortgage shouldn't be more than 25% of your take-home. You like that number? I do like that number. Does yeah. that include utilities or just the mortgage payment? I, I think of it more as the mortgage payment itself. Yeah, 30% it, would include utilities and other house maintenance and all that. But yeah, I, I like that number as well. As a rule of thumb. Too much. Yeah? Yeah. All right. As all a right. rule of thumb, it's too much. <laughs> Lots of car buying rules of thumb as well, and then life insurance. We've got uh, we've got several other rules of thumb, and then we're going to kind of clean it all up and help you apply it to your situation. That and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Should we, uh, what what's the financial rule of thumb around buying vehicles, and is it is it different right now since they're you know wildly expensive and in short supply. So we're talking about financial rules of thumb, which ones you should follow, which ones you should break. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on the YouTube channel. Go check it out. Search you, Go to YouTube, search the Wise Money Show, follow us there, turn on notifications, smash the thumbs up button, leave comments as well. All right, we're talking about rules of thumb, financial rules of thumb, and whether you should follow them or break them. With vehicles, 
buy a three-year-old vehicle, that's one, or if you're going to drive the car more than 10 years, you can buy new. What's your hot take on those? Yeah, I, I'm, I don't have any problem with either one of those. I, I personally, I'm opposed to buying new vehicles. I've bought three new vehicles in my life, and each of those three vehicles were for my wife to drive because there were safety enhancements. Um, so when, when, when Josh was born, so was born a new minivan. Are you, is this, so those of you that don't know Kevin Corhorn well, you, you, you like dreaming and thinking and, and making changes and shifting. And I like the idea of if you're going to buy new, you better own that thing for at least 10 years. And I'm saying at least because of all the tech they're putting in them right now, but I don't, I couldn't see you keeping the same car for more than 10 years. No. So, right. So again, the new car is what my wife owns. Right. That's yeah. Or, or drives and she drives it until either the wheels fall off or it hits a deer. (laughs) Uh, You guys had the minivan for a long time. The car hits a deer. Isn't that funny how you say that? Yeah. Um, Because cars. Don't, 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 don't. don't, don't, Okay. So anyway. So I so I don't so this is the thing. If you if you were asking what's the most expensive way to own a vehicle, buy a new one. Like that that is expensive. I've looked at that. There are trade-offs. That's why I'm not a huge fan of rules of thumb. It's like um talking about do I buy new, do I lease, do I look Because if you can't afford a new car, then don't buy the new car. Okay? Right. So so here's so here's even, what I tell you. Even if you say I'm gonna I'm gonna drive this thing until you know, whatever. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. Right. So it right. So I would tell you, uh, if you're going to buy a new car, buy it with cash. Yeah. And and because I remember when we got our new minivan and we went up and and drove up and and saw uh, some family and uh, one of the family members um, said, "Oh, well, we'd like to have a new minivan too, but the payments would uh, be too much for us." I'm like, "Don't ins- have a payment." Insinuating then, right? that we had payments, and I said, "Yeah, payments would suck." Um, and see, and so here's the thing. It's no one's so mean, Kevin. I know I am. I, I'm wretched. I am, I am, I am in, in desperate need of a savior, but the, what I would, I would encourage you because the other thing, if you're waiting to do this with cash, you're going to wait and make a better decision. I agree. The three-year-old vehicle right now in this, I, I mean, there's, there's an economic reality happening right now, at least if I if I take it at face value, what some recent friends have said, you know, they were hunting for a new minivan mm-hmm. uh, or a different minivan upgrade, and the used market is just not normal right yeah. now. And what they found was the premium that's being charged on a lot of these used vehicles, mm-hmm. you're actually better off potentially just going and buying new at this point. Or you might have just an easier time getting that vehicle because you'll have to wait and wait and wait and hunt and hunt and it's hunt to get face. a decent deal. I mean, now it's a terrible time to buy a, buy a vehicle. So Period. It, any rules of thumb on vehicles sort of go out the window, pun intended, uh, during this season. Well, I, I have a rule of thumb about vehicles. And I heard this a long time ago, and it made a lot of sense. The cheapest vehicle you'll ever drive is the one you're driving now. Yeah. So I have, you know, when I look at what the vehicles my children are driving, we continue to, you know, use duct tape and bubble gum and popsicle sticks to keep these things together and on the road because these are the cheapest vehicles the kiddos are ever going to drive. And you're buying time ultimately. Either you're going to build more cash because you drove your vehicle just a little longer. You're going to wait for the used car market to normalize a little bit. I think we talked in a prior show about 
kind of kind of remembering the cash for clunkers deal back in the mm-hmm. 2008 during during that crisis that just decimated the entire uh, used car market for a while. We had to wait for inventories to build back up so that prices would come back down to earth. Maybe we're going to need to do that again. So drive that same car you're driving a little longer if you can. Yeah, if you drive that car a little longer until your children are financially independent, not my problem. <laughs> there you go. I, so I'm not a I'm not a car person. Uh, so I have to drive a vehicle that I I wouldn't mind if it had a dang in it. Like that's that's a little rule of thumb. Like don't. Don't that that keeps me grounded and down to earth because there are some cars I look and it's like oh that is sweet yeah and then if I bought that thing I would be absolutely freaked out if you anything ever happened guarding to it. it at night no. and... so okay um, life insurance buy term invest the difference good rule of thumb I like that one I, what's the difference the difference is is that no one ever invests the no difference. No one That's calculates problem, it. Yeah. No one calculates it and invests the difference, which is why a long time ago when the math made sense, or at least in my view, I did a return on premium. On, so I've got a couple term policies in place. One of them is a return on premium because I thought, well, I'm not going to invest this difference. It's $300 extra a year. It's not. I'm not going to invest an extra 300 bucks a year. That's not going to move the needle. But if I do this, I calculated, I'd get all of the money back. It was approximately a 5% rate of return. I'm like, all right, let's do that. So, yeah, I, I love it in theory. I don't see it happen in practice. But, but here's the reality. I mean, most people are not saving enough for retirement or their long-term goals, right? right? And so one way that you can free up resources to nudge yourself in the right direction is to not overspend on life insurance. And that doesn't mean skinny down the amount of death benefit that you have right. and just hope that you never die. No, you can have the right amount of life insurance and it can be affordable if you're buying term life insurance and essentially just protecting the most important years instead of protecting your entire lifetime. Yeah. Do you really need life insurance when you're 85 years old? You might say, well, of course I do, because that's when I'm more likely to die. Well, that's also <laughs> when you should have the resources to make yeah. dying affordable, if that makes any sense okay. at all. So, and this is the last Cheapest one. Cheapest death I ever had. <laughs> this is the last one I have on my list. So if you guys have other rules of thumb that we haven't hit yet, that's, that's you know, feel free to share them. But Life, you need life insurance that's equal to seven times your annual salary. I cannot stand this one. I this might be the worst. Times? This might be the worst rule of thumb on the list. Has no connection. It, no. You need a financial need, a life insurance needs analysis. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, so yeah, be, because and I'll just quickly say it. This suggests that at near the end of your career, your salary is the highest, and near the end of your career, then you need the most life insurance, and that makes zero sense. It's inverse. Yep, exactly. So, any rules of thumb that I missed, guys? What? Give me, give me your your next best. We got just a couple minutes. Um, we, we often talk about when when someone is trying to get out of debt. Uh, we'll talk about a debt snowball approach and saying, hey. If you can start with the smallest balance and get that thing wiped out and make your way up the food chain as far as size of accounts that you're paying off, that is probably the, the most successful approach. Yeah. The most uh, economically uh, beneficial is to pay off the highest interest rate debt first. Either one is a win. The point is you're focused on it, you have a plan, and you're pursuing the plan. Yeah, I, I think of a couple investing Mm-hmm. Rules of thumb. One is this, that uh, you know the stock market averages ten percent over time. Most investors, according to the Dalbar study, and that's been around since since I started in this business, if the stock market 
the S&P 500 does 10%. The average investor does south of 4%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you say, well, why, why does the average investor do that? Because your investments are like soap. They, the, the more you handle them, the smaller they get. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> you say, all right, well, keep your hands off the soap, doggone it. And so I it, use body wash and, and have a and have a plan. And then the other, the, the you know, if you okay, Mike, go ahead. All right, so we're gonna pick back up on that cliffhanger from Kevin, and then got questions from fans of the show. That and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here, friends. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on podcast. Wherever you listen, make sure you check us out. Just search the Wise Money Show, follow us or subscribe to it, whatever you need to do, and rate the show and leave some comments there. We we appreciate that. Uh, all right. We're still talking about financial rules of thumb. Which ones... Do you break, not thumbs, thanks, Kevin, for verify, for confirming that, clarifying that earlier. Which rules of thumb do you break, not not thumbs? And which ones do you actually follow? Which ones do you live by? The worst on the list we just hit, and that's seven times your salary for life insurance. Makes no sense. Do a life insurance needs analysis with your certified financial planner. Just did some Next Wise Step videos on this. Too often, insurance is sold and not solved. You need solved through your comprehensive financial plan all the insurance decisions you need to make are solutions. It's not a sales process. It's solutions to problems that you talk through with your CFP. And so, anyway. Um, but, okay, so what are some other rules of thumb? Let's talk well, I, if you if you really don't like the seven times your salary for life insurance, I've got one that is, that is almost as awful. All right. If you're employed and earning income, you need 10 times your income to retire. Yep, can't yep. stand it. No, nope. so no, no muy bien. I, I saw some of those that you know at certain ages, and we've done shows on this before. We're going to continue to do shows on these because people just like the financial compare game, and I, I do too at times, right? Uh, ultimately, though, you need to look at your own financial situation, work with the CFP to see if you're on track. But what is it? One times your your average salary by thirty, or in your twenties. Two times in your thirties, four times in your forties. I, I think it's I think it's something like that, and that gets you up to somewhere close to eight or ten times in that range. By, by the time, time you reach retirement. Mm-hmm. What That's about the other one? Where you need um, retirement income equal to eighty percent of your pre-retirement um, wages salary. Or, yeah, just that you're planning to spend that amount. Yeah. That's what all these online calculators, a lot of them just bake in a certain assumption on, well, everything's based on what you had been doing before. But the, the reality is the, the best way to enter into retirement is by taking a fresh look at your budget and determining, well, what is it that I need in order to live the life that I want? And testing that number against your retirement projection to say, well, is that sustainable? Is it affordable? And if it's not, then you need to make some adjustments or retire later or something. Um, but sometimes I, I've had quite a few people recently, especially after the, the past three years of market run up and portfolio mm-hmm. growth has been pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a growing number of people who had been planning 
to spend at one level and now they can actually afford to spend a bit more because their investments have have done well but you know we're not trying to talk people into just spending money just to spend money you need to have a purpose and and know that it is a plan that's sustainable the only way to do that is to build an actual retirement plan and not rely on an online calculator yep so one of the investing rules of thumb that is my least favorite is that your age represents the percentage of bonds you should have in your portfolio. Oh, my goodness. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that one didn't make my top 10 list because that's when we've, I've heard since I was in college. Yeah, yeah I completely disagree. There's, a, there's an implied rule of thumb that maybe a, a lot of our listeners have, have heard um, or maybe even have felt, and that's as soon as you can draw Social Security, you should. Mm-hmm. Because that's what all your neighbors have done. That's what your brother-in-law did or your sister or whomever. Um, th- that is, uh, unfortunately, it's a, a surefire way to, first of all, limit how much Social Security you're going to get during your lifetime. But it's a drag upon your own financial plan, ultimately. If you can't maximize the dollars that you're going to get out of out of Social Security and go against the herd, because the herd is pointed in the wrong direction on Social Security. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to calculate, well, what is the best approach for you individually that's consistent with your plan? And um, n- not just do what uh, y- your coworker who retired a few months before you did. I, I, completely, I completely agree. We've talked about this a, a lot. And emotionally, it's I, I get it. There's this gravitational pull. When you can draw Social Security, you're going to want to because you're not promised tomorrow. You've been paying in this system forever, and you hear all the time about how it's insolvent or it's on its way to being insolvent and blah, blah, blah. So you say, well, i got to get mine while I can, and I've been paying into it for so long. Mathematically, that is the wrong choice. I, you know, Right when we were starting the Wise Money Show, I think we we're also starting to blog, and I realized it's much better talking in the microphone than typing on a computer. It took way less time. But one of my first <laughs> blogs was Oedipus and Social Security. And, you know, the story of Oedipus, uh, don't read it around your children, but guy hears a prophecy and escapes, runs, because I'm not doing that, and runs right into fulfilling the prophecy. And, and I, I think the same happens with Social Security. People are like, well, I better get mine while I can. And so they draw as soon as possible, and it 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 kind of guarantees that they draw the least amount out of Social Security that they possibly could. That's right. So anyway. What about this one? Um, should your Roth IRA be the last place that you tap into retirement resources? Mm. Of all the accounts that you march into retirement holding on to, which ones should you draw from first? Which ones should you postpone? A lot of people would say, let that Roth IRA grow as long as possible because it's growing tax-free. And then someday when you're drawing it out or you leave it behind to your kids or grandkids, um, you have maximized the number of years that it's growing in a completely tax-free environment. What do you guys say about that? We completely agree. Yeah, It's got to be based on your own financial situation because if for some reason you need to draw money out in a unique year where you're going to get walloped on tax, Maybe you could talk me into drawing a little bit out of Roth, maybe. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, I, I, I defer that thing. So I have a couple implicit rules of thumb. These are rules of thumb that are observationally, if that's even a word, I, I've 
I've seen happen in real life. And I'm like, well, somewhere out there, someone's got a rule of thumb that they're talking to people about because this is a pattern that happens over and over and over again. And it could be so much better. So one of the implicit rules of thumb is hire a financial planner six months before you retire. <laughs> so what would you guys say to that, you smart fellows? The first, the, the first thing that, that uh, brings to mind is uh, an old cartoon have you yes, guys, you guys know, know this cartoon? Exactly going, yeah. It's so good. And it's this it's this guy sitting in an office across the table from another guy and says, uh, all right, I've you know, I haven't saved a dime and I'm retiring tomorrow. There's your chance to be a legend. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is just fantastic. Uh so yeah, if you've been preparing all this all that time, um yeah, I'm I'm still gonna say you're you will have missed out on opportunities. Kevin, remember Meeting with an individual, an influencer in the community, fantastic, fantastic guy, and uh, came and started a relationship, actually had a life insurance salesman as a financial advisor for a long time, and then came in and met with us, right, and not about the time of retirement, but later in life, mm -hmm. and we said, oh, yeah, well, why don't you have a Roth IRA? Oh, because I can't contribute to one. Like, yeah, you can. So even if you're prepared to retire and you come see someone six months before, I can just almost assure you, you'll also realize you've been missing out on certain opportunities. Yeah, and I think that that relationship with a, a, a firm, because you say, oh, I want a relationship with a person. Well, people, um, some people last, not everyone lasts. So I would have a relationship with a firm that's actually a, a business, not just a good job for somebody. And so have a relationship with a firm that has certified financial planners that will be able to live hopefully as long as you do. And I would say get started early because yeah. you say that the, the tricky thing is this paradox is that I don't have the money to hire a financial planner. And in my mind, I always think you don't have the money Therefore, you need to hire a financial planner. Uh -huh. If you have any money to invest, your first investment should be in a plan. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I think of that. And then, Josh, well, to, to say that a little bit differently, uh, there's a mentality that you have to have a bunch of money in order to justify needing a financial advisor also. And that's right. why a lot of people, well, I'm just going to accumulate on my own. And then when I get everything gobbled, you know, all pulled together and everything, and I'm ready to march into retirement, that's when I'll need a, a guide. But the, the reality is you will have a better shot at actually accumulating the right amount if you get started early. So I got one more. All right. Uh, here we go. This is the implicit rule. My kids will have the skills, financial skills necessary to manage what I'm leaving them. Because I've, we've worked with many, many folks that have had kind of outsized results in their financial lives, um, extraordinary results. And so when we talk to them and say, okay, Joshua, if, you're, if you have a net worth of $20 million and you have two kids, are each of your children at this point ready to manage $10 million? And they look and like, what are you talking about? Like not even close. I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. Um, is but what we need to do is get to work on helping those kids build the skills. And a lot of times, that's a chess move. That's not a checkers move, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, that's thinking outside the bun a little bit. So what you want to do is be thinking, how do I help get my kids equipped? And maybe one of the 
one of the greatest gifts you could ever give your children or one of the best investments you could make in, in your children is hiring a financial coach to work with them and help them get equipped to be able to handle the stewardship responsibilities you're going to transfer to them when yeah. you're done with these yep. things. We've often said that one of the last decisions that you make as a steward of resources that are not going to be in your hands forever is who's the next steward going to be. Mm-hmm. But one of the most important preparations that you should be doing is investing in those stewards to make sure that they are ready. And it's a good point because we don't know uh, how many days we have. And you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm planning on spending most of this during my lifetime, but you could be gone tomorrow mm-hmm. and suddenly they are maybe burdened with resources that you've been building for your entire lifetime. And are they equipped and are they ready to receive it? That, that's a fantastic question. After a financial windfall, whether that's a big contract for you know a sport or whatever, or on the sad side, someone passed away, you receive life insurance or whatever, avoid making a significant financial decision for at least 12 months. I'm saying that. I know we don't have much time, but that's something that we've coached people on for Not years. enough people have that rule of thumb in the back of their mind, do they? Yeah. Because at the time that life just completely got scrambled, they're trying to kind of piece things back together and take back some control, and they often make some decisions that turn out to be mistakes. The, the point is, you know, hopefully you enjoyed the content and the discussion around financial rules of thumb, and but you've got to apply this to your situation with your certified financial planner. I don't know which of these, even the ones that we said were good, actually are good for you. I don't know. you got to work with your CFP. That's, the, that's their job to look at all six areas of your financial life and help you take your next wise step. So hope that helps. Uh, that's all the time we have. On behalf of Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, and all of us at KFG, have a good weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated. What will be helpful is then we do a show that's all questions coming yep. up or something like that. Why would you do that? Didn't we talk about getting the uh, the, the dad joke button in here or something like that? <laughs> that one the, is not a dad joke. That the, is just a bad joke. <laughs> I, it's confusing. It's thin line between dad and bad. It's really thin. <laughs>